We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Depending on which version of the Pew Bible, you might find it on page 1030 or page 885. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 5, I just want to share briefly, I came across something this week that really intrigued me. Uh, I've seen adult coloring books. Everybody in here has probably seen adult coloring books. But this adult coloring book was something kind of in particular. It was a book that was designed for medical students. So someone who's going to school to become a nurse or a doctor, you purchase this adult coloring book, and it's been designed in such a way that as you color, you're supposed to absorb and learn the material for your human anatomy and physiology class. And as I was looking at that, it reminded me of a story I heard about a little boy who was coloring. And he was coloring a picture, and he was just working you know, a big part of the day. He was furiously coloring, and his mom came in, and she was curious as to what would have occupied his attention, you know, with just so much intensity. And, and he said, Mom, I'm coloring a picture of God. And she thought about it for a second, and she was like, but, but honey, we don't really know what God looks like. He says, everybody will know once I'm finished. <laughs> so, you know, there's this idea that we have these pictures of God in our head. But sometimes they're accurate and other times they're not. Sometimes they're one dimensional and other times they're multifaceted. And one of the things we have to remember as we go through the book of Revelation is what we said at the very beginning is that some people approach the book of Revelation like it's a puzzle. Like there's this great mystery to be discovered in salt. I don't believe that's the way John wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote it instead as more of a picture book. You can imagine that all of these images, and some of them are are just fantastic images, images that do require us to do some heavy lifting and some heavy interpretive work, but yet they're not mysteries hidden. They're pictures that taken together present to us with this overwhelming picture of a sovereign, strong, gracious, and merciful God who rules history from beginning to end. All of the nations, all of the people groups, For his glory and for our good. What we see in the book of Revelation are these pictures of a God who rules and reigns over his church. Who executes judgment on his enemy and our enemy, Satan and the world. Last week we were given this wonderful picture of what's really at the center of human reality. John is given glimpse into an open door. And the idea of this door being open to him is that he's seeing something that human beings don't normally uh, get to see. And there inside this open door, what he sees is a throne in the center. And around that throne were 24 elders. And there were four creatures, and these creatures were described in very unique and uh, interesting ways. But what becomes clear as we went through Revelation chapter 4 is that they're engaged in the worship of the living God. The creatures sing a song of God's strength and might. The elders respond. It's a declaration of God's beauty and of his goodness. What we're going to see is that Revelation chapter 5 draws and continues on this particular image. So if you would, let me invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. We'll begin in verse 1, Revelation chapter 5, in which John writes, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, in this particular passage, Jesus is presented to us in two very distinct ways. This vision puts together two views of Jesus, which seem to be complete opposites. The first, in, in verse 5, Jesus is presented as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then later, he's shown to us to be a lamb who has the appearance of one who was slain. Now, it's important to understand this truth, though they seem like opposites. You have to take them together to fully begin to comprehend who and what the nature of Jesus really is. I don't know how many of you collect baseball cards or um, collector cards. I have uh, you know, a whole folder full of baseball and football cards. And probably one of my favorite things was, if you remember, in the early 90s, Operation Desert Storm. They actually had Operation Desert Storm trading cards with you know, all kinds of military equipment and you know, leaders. Uh, I, I believe General Schwarzkopf was uh, you know, the leader of, uh, of that uh, invasion. And so I had all these baseball cards like that. I had all these football cards very similar to that. But sometimes you get a really special card. It's called a hologram card. And the hologram card was designed in such a way that if you looked at it like this, you saw maybe just a picture of a baseball player's face. But if you tilted it and moved it, then you saw an entirely different image. Same person, but presented in a different way. That's what John is doing here in Revelation chapter 5. We see the same person, Jesus, from a different perspective or in a different way. Now, while it seems implausible to our minds to think of somebody as both a lion and a lamb, exactly that's what John is saying here. He wants to see Jesus as he truly is with the hope that we would respond the same way that the elders do, that we would fall down and we would worship him. But before we get to the lion and the lamb, we have to understand what's going on here, the context of Revelation chapter 5. We have to understand the structure of what's taking place so that we can then respond to the lion and lamb appropriately. He begins by saying 
that there is the one who is seated on the throne. We looked at this last week. That is God the Father seated on the throne. And he holds in his right hand a scroll that's covered front to back and it's sealed with seven seals. And there's a voice that says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Now, the idea of this being in the right hand of God simply refers to the authority that he has to declare his will and then to accomplish it. This scroll is a depiction of the judgments that will come upon the earth. The, control, the scroll excuse me, contains the detailed plans and purposes of God, not only for judgment, but also for redemption. It's his will to subdue his enemies and to establish his reign upon the earth. So we see this image of a scroll. And if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, we've talked about this, we have to understand the Old Testament because a lot of the pictures, a lot of the imagery that we see in John's apocalyptic writing come from the Old Testament. Now, a book or a scroll in the Old Testament is clearly a record of God's judgment. Sometimes it represents God's mercy towards his people. But the most direct correlation to this particular passage is found in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn over there, you can. If you want to look at it later today, you can see that there's an account of one who's called the Ancient of Days. And this Ancient of Days is described very much like what we hear in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. His clothes and his hair are white like pure wool. His throne is like fiery flames. A stream of fire comes out from his throne. And thousands of thousands serve him. He's in the midst of what is a courtroom proceeding, and he sits in judgment, and this book is brought out, and it's opened. And when the book is opened, we read that the beast was killed, and its body destroyed. Daniel goes on and talks about, after the opening of this book, there comes the reign of one who is like the Son of Man. And this one who is like the Son of Man, he's going to be served by all peoples, all nations, all groups. And he, has, he will have a kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. There are parallel truths in these passages. There's a throne. There's the one who comes and is presented before the throne. And then there's gifts or uh, there's uh, things offered from the throne. The scroll represents God's judgment, his salvation, and his redemption. Now the throne is just the fact that he has the right and the authority to execute his divine rule over all of creation. To dispense his judgments as he sees fit. So John sees this scroll and he recognizes that this is the will of God for the whole course of human history. But there's a problem. There's a problem. No one is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Supposedly... Uh, dispatches are sent to all the four corners of heaven and earth and even under the earth to find if there might be one who was worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll. And then the idea is that he would be the one that executes what's written there in the scroll. Who is worthy to do this? If you think about the course of human history, if you are interested in those kinds of things, there have been numerous people who have had incredible reigns of power and authority. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, who was found in the Old Testament. He boasted of how he had built the great city of Babylon. But he went mad and his empire fell apart. Alexander the Great thought he had accomplished everything that there was to accomplish. At the age of 32, 10 years younger than I am, it's kind of hard to believe. At the age of 32, he wept because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. Everything was under his thumb. But just 
Months later, he drank himself to death and his empire, too, was gone. Julius Caesar led Rome across the face of Europe in which he was trying to establish the peace of Rome on the whole of the earth. Think of what we see with Napoleon, with Hitler, in which he was trying to establish a thousand-year reign in which he would be the ultimate power. All of them, they rose and they fell. Think of great philosophical, spiritual leaders, pastors that you might have known, men like Billy Graham or Martin Luther or John Calvin, even those, the very best among us, could not solve the problem of humanity. So who is worthy? That's the question. And this question completely and totally undoes John. He starts to weep. John sees a scroll, but he knows that there's no one that he's aware of that's worthy to open the seals and to execute the scroll. He weeps because the scroll represents that God's purposes will fail. His plan of redemption, the salvation of fallen human beings will not be accomplished. Evil will continue. The kingdom of God, the new heavens, the earth that we'll read about later in this book, they will not come to pass if the scroll remains sealed. Life, all of the suffering, the evil that we experience, that we commit, it will all be futile and meaningless. But in verse 5, notice what happens. One of the elders, and we talked about this, the, the created beings that we read in Revelation chapter 4 represent creation. The elders, we said, uh, have been identified by some as representing the church, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There were the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles taken together. You get these 24 elders who are gathered around the throne in worship. One of the elders comes and says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered... So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One has been found who is worthy. There's one member of the human race who is without sin. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's interesting. Jesus is called a lion. and That makes perfect sense. The lion is the king of the jungle. It's a strong, majestic, powerful animal. It was a symbol of royalty. But it's also referring to a very specific prophecy that's found in Genesis chapter 49. In which Judah is described as a lion's cub. From the prey you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. And who dares rouse him? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. This idea of the scepter shall not pass from him. He's just going to have this everlasting rule and reign. All the people are going to come and bow down before him. Judah, being described in this way, is a picture of who and what Jesus ultimately is. That's being revealed, uh, fulfilled, what was revealed in Genesis here in Revelation chapter 5. But the angel also refers to him as the root of David. In Isaiah chapter 11, he's referred to in a similar way, but he's referred to as the root of Jesse, who was David's father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and he shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth, there's the idea of judgment, with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is a picture of a king who rules, not for his own benefit, not so that he can accumulate a greater and greater empire and live more in luxury, but so that he can serve the poor and the meek. One who will bring justice 
and equity. So John's expecting, based upon this description of the elder, to see this strong and mighty ruler. This one coming in strength and splendor. He expects to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the one he expects to take the scroll. The one who has conquered and overcome. But here's something interesting. And if, if you're not careful, you can miss what happens. The elder says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering hero, he's the one worthy to open the scroll. But when John looks to see, what does he see? He doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. A lamb who appears to have been slain. It's a subtle transition. The elder says, look for the lion. And John turns and sees a lamb. The elder says, behold, the conquering king. And John sees one who gave himself up as a sacrifice. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect to see based on what the elder says. You would see a strong, mighty lion, but instead there's a sacrificial lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. John says they're the seven spirits of God. We've talked about the idea of seven meaning fullness, completion, or the, or the essence of something. It's, this is the Holy Spirit that goes out all over all the earth and convicts men and women of sin and of righteousness. This is the Lamb who has divine authority. This Lamb is encircled by the four living creatures and the elders and these concentric circles of angels that go out. And they worship and they sing this song. He arrives on the scene and the elders and the living creatures say, You are worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It's a picture of the power and of the glory of the Lamb of God. But it's a picture of power that defies our expectation because it doesn't come the way we imagine. And see, that's what Jesus does. He always turns things upside down or right side up or inside out from what we would expect. You want to be powerful? Then you crush your enemies. You want to be powerful? Then you take advantage of anybody and everybody that you can. You want to be powerful? Then the moment you smell weakness, you pounce on it. When there's blood in the water... Like sharks, you feed. But Jesus does something entirely different. He does the exact opposite. He says, the power of sin, I'm going to defeat that power by offering myself as a sacrifice. The power of pride, the thing that we struggle with as human beings, the thing that really is the motivation behind almost everything that we do, he defeats that by coming in humility. In Philippians, the book that we're studying our Saturday morning Bible study, there's this great passage and when it talks about the glory of God, the glory of Jesus and how he sets that aside is not something to be grasped. He sets that aside and there's this theological term called the kenosis. It just means the emptying of. He takes all of that and he sets it aside and it says he humbled himself and he came as a servant. He humbled himself and he dies on the cross. We think power comes through strength and we recognize that the lamb comes in meekness. The picture we see in Revelation 5 is that the Lamb of God is the glory of God. The specific way He chooses to come. The specific way that God redeems and saves His people reveals to us the glory of who He is. The risen Jesus tells us that it's His grace that is made perfect in weakness. Not our strength. But His grace 
is made perfect in our weakness. We want to be a strong people, but God's saying, if you're a strong person, then you don't really need me. If you're a strong person, then you're never going to really experience my grace. If you're a strong person who has his life all together, well then, you know, you, you, I don't really have anything to offer you. But if you're a broken person, if you're a hurting person, if you're a person who's royally screwed up your life, then the grace of the Lord Jesus is for you. God is glorified in saving sinners. God is glorified in saving sinners, not saving self-righteous people who have it all together. See, there's a way that we sometimes approach the Bible and the whole idea of salvation in that we think of it this way, is that we're, you know, in the classic fairy tale, we're the princess who's been taken away by a dragon. And because we're a princess, we're inherently valuable and worthy of a knight to go on a quest to rescue and to save us. And so we think of ourselves, maybe not consciously, but we think of ourselves as the, the, the princess who's been you know, taken away and she's in the tower of a castle and the dragon is there guarding her, preventing her from leaving. But the truth is we're something altogether different. We're like a rusted, abandoned car in a farm field. That somebody's driving down the road and they see and they recognize the potential in the right hands. And so they go to the owner of this particular car and they say, you know, I'd really like that car. And the owner says, well, you know, that car's not really worth anything. It doesn't run. And, you know, it's all rusted out and the windows have been broken. And they say, that's okay. I want that car. And so they load that car into a trailer. They take it to a shop. And over the next several weeks and months and maybe years, they begin meticulously to restore this car from the ground up. And then maybe one day when the project's finished, they take it to a car show and they park it and all the people gather around and they marvel at the beauty of this car. But it's really not the car that they're marveling at. It's the work of the restorer. It's really the person who purchased the car, the person who spent meticulous time taking every little piece apart and cleaning it and then putting it back together. That's what they're really marveling at. They're marveling at the story of redemption that's been enacted in front of their eyes. See, we're not a princess. You and I, the Bible says, we're the enemies of the living God. But that God, because he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, shows his love to people like you and me. And he says, I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. And that while you're still my enemy, when you're still thumbing your nose to my face, defiant in your hard-heartedness and disobedience, my grace will come to you through the person of Jesus. That's why the elders gather around and sing these things. Worthy you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. They go on. And they say, worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's the story of every single one of us. That's the story of every single man, woman, boy, and child who have been united to Christ is that he is worthy. Even when we were unworthy. He was faithful when we were a faithless people. And because of his willingness, not just to be the lion, but to be the lamb who was slain, God has made possible for your sins, my sins, to be forgiven. So that we can be counted in this number of myriads and myriads Thousands of thousands of angelic voices and the 24 elders who represent the redeemed people of God and the four creatures who represent all creation gathered together to sing this heavenly chorus of God's infinite worthiness. Let's pray.